This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, this is Christina on location at the Venice Film Festival, and I'm so excited to meet up with the great John Bleasdale, journalist and critic, for part two of our 2021 Venice Film Festival Dispatch. But first, a quick note. We're reviewing and agreeing and disagreeing on a bunch of movies that we've seen here, and we get into a lot of detail. So you've been warmed. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential from Venice with John Bleasdale. We're here, we're meeting each other for the first time. First time, it's lovely to be here in the flesh. Zoom does not do you justice. (laughs) You get the whole 360 degree experience. (laughs) Virtual reality, except it's reality. So we're sitting, if you guys are going to be hearing, um, we're sitting in the courtyard of a hotel. Tell Mm -hmm. us where we are for the noises. So this is a famous hotel. It was featured in a Mike Figgis film, Cold Hotel, actually. But, easy to remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, easy name. Um, the, the hotel's called the Asonia, I think. He, he says, checking, yes, the Asonia Palace Hotel. Uh, and it's a historical, got a beautiful facade. Really, really, really Really beautiful, lovely. gold and... Uh, and we're about a uh, 10 minute walk from the festival, the film festival village. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's really nice to be here. So you're gonna hear some mopeds and you're gonna hear a fountain and little things like that, so that you know that we're live. So how's the festival been treating you? It's been treating me very well. Um, last, last time we spoke, uh, we talked about uh, the COVID things and how, how it went last year. I don't think it's going quite that well in terms of the organization. But that has to be put in the context of last year, a lot of people didn't come. This year we're back to almost normal attendance, I would say. Maybe a few a number is missing because of the Americans not, not being here in, in force. Uh, so uh, things like the booking system has been a, a little bit wonky and, um, and some of the security measures have slowed things down and delayed people getting to uh, screenings. But I personally, I can't complain. I've had a really good time so far. Yeah, I've had a very good time too. It has been difficult to, you've had to take quite some time to book because you've had to book 72 hours before each film. And so sometimes when you're sitting in a film, you can't book another film and things like that. So, and there's nothing to complain about other than some things you have to cover. So for work, it makes it a little bit difficult. Absolutely. uh, We're here and we've seen a lot of great movies and we've seen the ones that we talked about. I think you've seen a few more because I've had a few interviews that have taken some time so I mean one theme that for me and for everyone it's not an original theme but I think that's really stuck out in this festival airplane going that's uh, George Clooney coming from (laughs) Cuomo (laughs) you know but one theme that's really stuck out for me is motherhood it's motherhood in almost every movie I've seen from Dune with Rebecca Ferguson and Timothy Chalamet to Madres Paralelas to one that both we're going to talk about later that both of us really like the Maggie Gyllenhaal um, picture Lost Daughters Um, there's been so much focus on really oh and of course the power of the dog with Kirsten Dunst and her son which also is a very powerful thing for us so I've been it's been so interesting for me to to really see several of them directed by women and it's just been very powerful for me this theme and not not to mention Spencer I was just about to say yeah, yeah, yeah. so have this have you noticed you thinking about this as well I, I well until you mentioned it no 
<laughs> well, you're I, not a mother. You're I, a father, this, I know. This is true. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it has been very, very, um, very much about women, definitely. And yes, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And as you were, uh, you know, uh, listing them, I, w I, I was jumping ahead and trying to think of, of another example. And of course, Spencer came immediately to mind. Um, yeah, motherhood is is really that's that's. I mean, you, this often happens at festivals that, that you know it's almost like a chaos theory thing that uh, one of the um, defining qualities of randomness is clusters. Yeah. So that you just you, you know you, you, random doesn't mean everything is spread out evenly. It means that you occasionally you're going to get heads, 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 and then tails. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it, it might be something to do with there being a few more. But I mean, there aren't more women in competition, for instance. No, there there's more, less. So I, I don't think that that's the case. But but certainly, there, maybe I don't know. Maybe we all need nurturing in this hard time, and we're we're thinking about that a little bit. Yeah, more. I was thinking that it's it's sort of it, as you were mentioning, it is it, it is a cluster, but it is a cluster because we've spent so much time analyzing, you know, the white man and the fatherhood and. Uh, the breaking bad type of character of man that this was a theme that was waiting to come and and maybe it's clustered because of other reasons or COVID or whatever but it's something that has been less explored yeah absolutely I, I think the the, the At least for a while. definitely I think there is a there's a sense that we don't interrog interrogate motherhood and cultural ideas behind it enough um, and what is really interesting and marvelous about almost all these films is that they really give quite daring insights and new ways of thinking about mothers which don't run along the familiar cliche no, lines painful and, and, and painfully and honest painful. and also written. also yeah, yeah yeah and also a spectrum of possibilities i think uh, the moldovar uh, parallel mothers um i'll let you do the spanish pronunciation <laughs> of, the, of the spanish title um is a, a really good example of of kind of not just looking at the old version of what a mother can be but actually offering a really new idea of what motherhood means uh, both biological and non-biological mm -hmm. right well let's get into that one later but why don't we start with the movie that um i think everyone was waiting for and mm. that's dune yeah <laughs> what did you think i really really liked it i really thought i i i love the look of it i think denis villeneuve has this amazing sense of scale uh, I think the, 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 it was gorgeous. It's not Roger Deakins as a cinematographer. I forget the, the name of the cinematographer, but the cinematography was, was luscious and immense. It had a sense sincerity that science fiction doesn't always have. We've got very used to the sort of quipping of the, adventure mo the Avenger movies and the comic book movies, which, which seem to be winking so often, it looks like a nervous tick now. Um, Whereas this was genuinely sincere, it was taking the idea of the epic seriously, and I, I think that that was fitting. You know, I mean, it's not humorless. There are two or three jokes, but literally two or three, and they're not at the expense of the film. Which was the perfect amount because Denis doesn't tend to do a lot of humor at all, and he had a little bit, but not that you're tipping over to what you're talking about—that Marvel where you're like a mile a minute. There's someone. Yeah, coming absolutely. In. The mm -hmm. wisecracking patter of Deadpool or. Mm -hmm. or, or or Robert Downey Jr. Uh, in Iron Man. I mean, a lot of those Marvel films feel to me like they're revivals of old screwball comedies. Um, I'm not sure if that comparison will stand stand much attention, but still. Uh, whereas this was this was anti-camp science fiction, mm -hmm. and it was also interesting because Herbert, if you know the book Herbert, 
invents a very interesting sort of mixture of myth and fantasy and history into science fiction. I mean, he's not doing the technologically advanced sort of things. It's, it's basically, what if you take the Middle Ages and you give them spaceships? Mm -hmm. You know, because a political organisation is feudal. They're big noble families who, who have the power and there's an imperium above them and their um, relationships to the indigenous people of the families is, is, is of the planets is, is also extremely uh, exploitative so in the film there are these really serious subtexts of political uh, criticism of, of imperialism criticism of uh, environmental destruction mm -hmm. and exploitation and and on top of all of that, you also have this hero's journey, which is you know which is very familiar from the Matrix and from Star Wars of somebody being the chosen one, somebody being the the person who's going to make a, a difference. And visually, just very beautiful, evocative picture. Thinking of Afghanistan, it just evoked a lot of thoughts about what's happening right now, just in the visuals. Absolutely, I mean, all the the, the Middle East, I think, uh, uh, comes comes into this picture. There's a sort of bits of it that reminded me of the first Iraq war mm -hmm. and Werner Herzog's uh, Lessons of Darkness where he he, oh, right. uh, he, he photographed the, the, the burning of the oil fields in Kuwait um, it also reminded me of Saddam Hussein's palaces the sort of this grand but empty splendor um, the music is, 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 is at times a little overpowering, a little overpowering yeah. but it also is you know it goes with the tone of sort of epic, epic, not seriousness, but importance. This has got heft. This has got weight. The one reservation I have uh, is that this is part one. The credit at the very beginning of the movie is June part one. And the very end of the movie, it finds an ending, although it takes a while to slightly struggle towards the end to actually find it. Um... It, it, it leaves it open. I mean, there's no way this can. I don't think this film stands alone. Mm. I think it needs a sequel. It needs to, it needs to be completed. Yeah. It's the first half of a book that was not published but in I two halves. But I think it was quite clear with that, though. I mean, there's a text in the beginning, and oh, it yeah. feels like it. So, because one thing I thought was, was interesting and a little bit odd is that the critics that weren't didn't really like it. The, first critics that came out thought it was too grand and pretentious and serious, and I was like, well. What did they want? Did they want Deadpool? It just felt like that criticism was... Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go and have a huge sort of banquet, you know, you can't... Well, they wanted Lynch. Well, well, maybe. I mean, I, I'm a really big fan of the Lynch mm. film, and I know it doesn't, it doesn't work narratively. In, slightly in, a, in the same struggle that this film is going to have to, to get the second half completed. Mm. Um, but I... I think that that criticism is like you know you're going to a banquet in a medieval palace and you're complaining about the portions. Right, right. You know, what I mean? <laughs> the portions are too big. You know, you go to the salad bar, go to your, you know. But this is you have to accept a film on its on its its own generic frame. If it, it, it it's it's doing something very specific. If you don't like anything that does that thing, then mm. then you can't just criticize this one individual right, film. Right. I mean, you know, other opinions are, are available and I'm sure there will be some very eloquent sort of takedowns of the movie I just uh, just it just worked for me mm -hmm. I, I sat yeah, there exactly. as both a fan of the book but also someone who um, 
uh, who loves cinema and science fiction in particular and I I was it satisfied me on, on a lot of different levels yeah. and the cast is really good I really wow, enjoyed yeah. the cast it, from the smaller parts Stellan Skarsgård is great as the Baron hugely Charlotte in Rampling makeup yeah. like Charlotte Rampling is all in you can't hardly see her mm. and she's there what in two scenes or scene and a half or something like that yeah, yeah. but it's hugely effective yeah hugely effective and my and Timothy Chalamet is great in this. He really works as the sort of uh, the boy prince or whatever you call him. He's kind of sexy Hamlet. Great isn't hair. He? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the hair is just a character of its own. And my the one who I thought was best was really Rebecca Ferguson, who plays his mother. And there you have the mother um, son relationship, which I thought that they handled really well throughout. And I was quite affected by it, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it, it's a. It's a it's slightly sort of like an unconventional thing as well because she's the concubine rather than the wife of the duke because he needs to stay single so he can marry for political purposes um and uh he's so so she has a definite subservient position but but she's also belongs to this religious order called the bene Gesserit, and uh they sort of like almost like catholic nuns but but they foster this um uh, telepathic powers and this bloodline and they can use these powers uh, with their voices to influence people and everything so she's also this extremely powerful oh, mm -hmm. figure in his life and and in some ways she's the much more powerful, powerful. Yeah. yeah exactly mm -hmm. she turns out to you know I mean we use the phrase soft power sometimes and then she has a very hard version of that mm -hmm. you know in, in influencing the people around her so I think that was a very interesting role yeah. I'll be interested to see because the book was written in 1965 and certain of, some of the concepts are definitely open to criticism. The idea of the white savior going mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. an indigenous population and leading it to a political thing. Uh, and the book was influenced by T. E. Lawrence and the Seven Pillars of Wisdom, so it, it kind of unavoidable that template. Um, but I do feel that Villeneuve and his screenwriters are really up, uh, updating it and finding resonance with today's, as you mentioned, well, Afghanistan, so yes. mm -hmm. the environmental issues, which which are every day more and more present so yeah and i'm really looking i hope i really hope they make part two oh, i don't I think so. it's a done deal at all no oscar isaac is also very good uh, he's in three different projects so we yes. can leave him to talk about coming up he's the sort of mvp of the festival he's he's magnetic in everything he does as yeah. you mentioned but let's move on to another couple of maestros that we talked about on the last one and that's sorrentino and almodovar which we both have seen they're sort of the big European auteurs um, coming with their big movies here and I think perhaps we'll be finding it out over Best Foreign Picture come Oscar, um, the Oscar race. What do you think, Sorrentino? Well, I don't think Sorrentino will be competing for the Oscar. I mean, he may be, may be nominated, but I don't think that, that he would win that. I mean, I'm terrible at predicting these things, so, so by all means play this back uh, <laughs> here next, next year. Um, no. uh, I mean, I the hand of God is uh, is very as we said in the first part, the first episode is a very uh, personal autobiographical thing about a personal tragedy, and so I kind of went into this feeling very very um, sympathetic towards the subject matter and wanted to see it. But unfortunately for me, Sorrentino is just whatever the Italian version of Marmite is. It just doesn't do it for me. And so even when he's good, and this film is much better than Loro, and it's much better than Youth, it's still, uh, I still can't quite, I don't have a taste for the grotesquerie of his comedy. 
I find his sentiment, his emotional sentimental, um, and I, the ghost of Fellini hovers. You know, it's like that film yesterday, um, where the Beatles music disappears overnight, and only one person can remember it. Right. it. You know, imagine a version of yesterday where it's Fellini's cinema disappears, and okay, Sorrentino, no Sorrentino is yeah. the only person who remembers mm. b vaguely watching the films, and he's reproducing them. Uh, and that's kind of his career, I feel. Um, so, I, yeah, this is definitely uh, an improvement on his last two movies. But I just, I just felt he he was. It's a lot of. It's, it's a lot of kind of bad taste. I just think I just just don't go. I don't fit in with his sensibility. Um, loads of people loved it. The screening I was at, there was there was a long applause. There was cheering. I think it, it really appeals to Italians because he he does get Nap Napoli, you know, mm -hmm. and and um, they recognise in him an accurate version. But, uh, but yeah, it didn't do it for me, I'm afraid. And it had like five different endings. Dune couldn't find an ending. It should have borrowed one yeah. from... <laughs> you take one from Sorrentino. Oh, he wouldn't have missed it. He'd still have four. Yeah. No, I'm a bit more forgiving because right. I thought that the, the story of his parents and the characters of the parents, I, I really liked that and, and it affected me. And for those who didn't listen, I mean, there's a very tragic... Um, thing that happened to Sorrentino when he was 17 and to his parents but he was saved because he went to a Maradona game while this was happening that was very effective for me what didn't work was the incredibly cliched women that he has in this movie the very typical Italian the young 16, 17 year old has to have his sexual awakening by an older woman who so gratuitously gives himself to him to, for help and this felt very cliche and a lot of busty women but I felt that there was a lot of the, the his the, the boy who portrayed him who also looks like Timothy Chalamet with very great hair so. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. who is Sorrentino um, his you know in, in this picture it was I would have loved even more the ending was of, of how cinema saved him was much shorter than I thought it would be. I thought that would be more of a part of the movie. Um, they spent more time on the other part. but So that was like a mixed bag for me. But I thought that his family, the parents, I understand what you're saying, that there's cliches there too, but that was more effective for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, think, I agree with you, it is lopsided. And again, I was looking at it and thinking of uh, Nuovo Cinema Paradiso, the, the Tornatore mm -hmm, film. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, in terms of his view of women, he always has this rather leering adolescent view of uh, of women. Anyway, um, you would, I mean, you you could almost forgive it in this film if you say, well, the film is shot from the perspective of a seventeen-year-old boy, so uh, it, it's his point of view. But Sorrentino has this in all of his, films. so he, he's you know he likes female flesh. Yeah, absolutely, and it, I mean the mum, I guess, would be because all of these people yeah, that he's related so to. Good. There's a sort of an incestuousness yeah. about it that uh, you know the, the, his sexual fantasy is with his aunt. Yeah. Uh, you know that he loses his virginity to a woman who's essentially a kind of like grandmother figure mm. to him, not biologically, but but still. Mm. He's um, been in his whole life, his whole life. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I, I, he, but I mean, even at, when it was at its strength, which I think his family, yeah, the parents and the, and the mother parents very much and the relationship so. with mm. the parents, that was where it was at its strongest. But even there, I found myself thinking of Amacord and Fellini, and just thinking, 
oh man, 10 minutes in the ki- in Fellini's kitchen is worth, you know, <laughs> yeah. three hours in sort of Sorrentino's whole apartment. You know? um, so yeah, it didn't work for me, I'm afraid. Um, well, it worked more for me, I yeah, thought it was, but, yeah. but I understand your point. And then Madres Paralelas, which is Almodovar's movie starring Penelope Cruz, who I think is just a national and international treasure. Um, she's really great in this movie. And she's in two films in this competition yeah, as well, yeah. official competition, which I've just seen. Oh yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay, I haven't seen that, we'll say afterwards. But she it's basically about two single mothers, one younger than her who meet in the maternity ward as they're just about to have a baby and then their lives become parallel in a sense because of these children that they have and it's also mixed with a lot of things about family about going back in your family and who who you belong to and blended families and what does it mean and I thought it just worked so well for me I thought it was the perfect amount of the Almodovar that you want with the actors, with the colors, with the, the humor, and then something new. That I did not see several of the twists and turns coming in this movie, which I know a lot of people feel are a bit crazy because it takes a few twists and turns that you re- but I did not see them coming, and that really worked for me. No, absolutely. Uh, no, I, I totally agree. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Amodava, and I, I always enjoy his films, and I always think there's a consistent quality. They're always interesting, but it's it's not it's not a filmmaker I particularly anticipate a new film coming out. This was one of his best in my book. I really really enjoyed it, and maybe it's because there was a maturity, there was a sort of gracefulness about the filmmaking that really suited the subject matter. Because the subject matter as well has this sort of um, daytime soap opera plot. That, that could easily have gone into that territory. But he pulls it back and he relates it very much to Spanish history. And and there, there's a real depth to his vision, I think. There's a real thoughtfulness in this film that sometimes he, he lacks. So it's, sometimes it's kind of the fun of his films as well. Mm-hmm. There's a vim and a sort of love of superficiality, which is, which is totally intentional. But here I felt... There's there's a there's a bit at the beginning and then at the end where where they go into a uh, into exploring Spain's fa- fascist past, and it kind of is a, also a way of indicating perhaps a potential Spanish future, mm-hmm. which um, if it does come to pass and hopefully it will, Omodovar would would actually be one of the you know the unacknowledged architect. Oh, absolutely. I thought he's so beautifully moved from that very deep and difficult theme of, you know, the Spain's fascist history to this superficiality that he does. And now we have to talk about Spencer, which I guess is the one of the most talked about movies this festival, which is, of course, Pablo Lorraine's movie about the Christmas days leading up to Diana's decision to divorce Charles and it's Kristen Stewart who plays Diana and it's gotten rave reviews she's gotten rave reviews I'm mixed but I'll let's listen to you first (laughs) (laughs) or I can start setting setting me up to fail (laughs) so that I'll uh, well the reason it's really really talked about let's face it is because of Kristen Stewart and she has a sort of fame and celebrity which extends way beyond her film career in fact you know she's releasing quite a number of films uh, which which are, are not necessarily sort of bothering the multiplexes in terms of making huge numbers I mean I think they're doing okay but you know the films like Seaberg 
uh, Camp X-Ray. Personal Shopper. Personal mm-hmm. Shopper, Underwater, just came out recently. I'm not sure what they're... I've not looked at the box office, but they're not... You know, may, there's not hit after hit in there. Um, certainly not smash hits, but her but her, her persona and her sort of... Even, even her public sort of uh, celebrity is much, much bigger than her career as an actress, I think. And that makes her choice for Princess Diana... Uh, really interesting because ultimately she's a very famous person with an ambivalent relationship to her fame playing a very famous woman with an ambivalent Mm -hmm. relationship to fame and I think it really works Um, there's a a very first scene that she appears in her accent just doesn't feel quite right feels much more like an impersonation than it does uh, a performance and she looks much more like Naomi Watts in (laughs) Diana than she looks like Diana so, so the, at the very beginning, I was sort of thinking, uh-oh, this, this could be another, well, Naomi Watts in Diana. It could be one of those, let's hope it's really bad so we can enjoy it for how bad it is. But after that first scene, I, w- I was reeled in quite quickly, and I found her very good. I thought her, her performance was really fragile, had a, suggested a fragility, but also a resilience. It suggested a, a mischievousness to her um her, her chronic tardiness for instance that she, that she, there was an element of rebellion in there and and also and this is I think where it adds something very new to the story it really does suggest that Diana was having pretty serious mental health mm-hmm. problems yeah that's the first time you, you see because we've had a lot of Diana particularly those who followed the crown there's there's, there's going to be more Diana with even a third actress first it was Emma Corrin and then now Kristen and then Elizabeth Debicki is going to play her in another season of but this is the first time I actually see a director going to a place where she actually has you know we're actually showing mental health issues and not just being totally tortured by her loveless marriage and what happened to her and not being able to get out of the royal family and it suggests a little bit more I thought that was very interesting too Pablo Lorraine the director and Stephen Knight who's a screenwriter they make this very explicit by by playing with time, by cutting cutting out things which were led up to, to, you know, it builds up a meal, for instance, and then it'll cut to dessert or it'll cut to um, a diner in the bathroom. Uh, and it's very disconcerting how it does that. Um, there are also visions and uh, a ghost appearance by Anne Boleyn. That I found... Did not fa- work for me. No. That was the part that didn't work for me. <laughs> Less successful, mm. certainly, and a little bit too on the nose as, mm. as far as the comparison was concerned. But um, but I, but I it, it did... It just made the... It did escape the crown, you know, because the crown... We, we know all this. We know that she had an eating disorder. We know that she was being in a loveless marriage with a fairly cold man, uh, a cruel man at times. But... Um, the thing that Pablo Lorraine does is he focuses entirely on on her, on Kristen Stewart's performance, and he eliminates the, the rest of the royal family who are really... Except yeah, for they're just sort of the, in the background. Exactly. You just see, you recognise there's a redhead that's probably Fergie and things like that, but sure. they're very little, they don't talk. And there's no just interaction. Right. The only members of the royal family, the most significant ones, that she has a relationship with... Uh, her sons William and Harry and I thought every scene with those actors those child actors were amazing they were marvellous and every scene that they had together Clooney going back yeah um, 
Mm. Every scene that He's they had together, yeah, every scene they had together, um, I thought elevated also Kristen Stewart's uh, performance because there's something essentially girlish about Diana as well. There's something that she's refusing to grow up. She's refusing to conform. She's refusing to settle down into this sort of princess role, which which needs to be sort of not playful and, and and with her children she can be playful she can be loving and she ultimately finds her only happiness there stunningly well cast i didn't wasn't mm. sure i would think that the disappointment for me because i agree with you with all the things and that cinematography was spectacular oh, yeah, another Claire female Lepon. dp yeah. yeah just amazing and all the scenes with the food coming in and the kitchen it was just you know you were just with jackie pablo lorraine's um previous film about a woman trapped under the pressures of media and in the Camelot as Jackie was um, I thought that he brought a very specific own idea to her agency and what she was doing and and how she was sort of um, taking command of saving the media image and the Camelot and, and all that that she did I did not really see that he had any new idea about Diana, um, other than yes, he showed how she felt. It was very surreal. It was very, um, almost like a horror movie when she's running around the, the castle, and you see, you really get the feeling of how, how she's held hostage and just physically ill over the whole situation and going more and more crazy. I understand that, but there was no. I missed one little more aspect of what his feelings towards who she actually was. I'm lived through those periods I was living in the UK mm -hmm. at the time and um, I'm very resistant to this sort of rewriting of history and the hagiography of Diana as the people's princess or the queen of our hearts or whatever um, I, I you know she did admirable charity work but she was a member of the nobility who, you know I, I have I, I don't have much sympathy for her as a, as a role as, mm -hmm. a, as a model in any way and I do find these sort of fairy tale rewritings of her and that, and again there's a weak a weaker part of the film is she has a relationship with several members of the help so just right speak. right the downstairs the exactly yeah. the downstairs of the upstairs downstairs mm -hmm. so you have a chef who played by Sean Harris who seems to have a, an intimacy that you don't understand where it came from and it could it, there was a bit of me that was almost thinking is he an imaginary character mm -hmm. is are these conversations actually happening because they didn't feel uh particularly well, I think he attached. wants you to feel that with several yeah. of them because she even asks at one point one of the her dresser are you real is that you um at one point so I, th I had the feeling that he sort of wants you to feel that her and, and basically what it is is that Diana's trust issues because the help would tell other members of the royal family and so, and so it became a paranoia is how I felt that he wanted to, you know, that she didn't know who and that's why we didn't really know what was real and what was real and who wasn't, which was interesting. But I have to say about The Crown, the thing is that The Crown is did not do a bad job it was a very no. good season with diana where she actually does a lot of the things that she does here the dancing she feels i mean it's basically this story where she's trapped in the castle and she's dancing and she's roller skating you see so for me i do think that it does hurt it a little bit it hurts it a little bit because the themes i mean they were just done and they were just done quite well i i mean it has the element where it, there are certain things it definitely doesn't do certain things it doesn't do and one of those things for instance is in the crown 
they have discussions. The family has discussions. Exactly. She has conferences with the Queen, interviews. She tries. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and arguments with Charles. Here, uh, most of that is left out. And, there's, and there is a sense that she's almost always talking to herself or talking to someone who she's not sure what their relationship is to her. Paranoia, I think, is a really interesting point. I think that's the key to the movie. I think so, too. Because huh? as the film goes on, you don't ever really understand, is she being treated really, really badly, or is does she only think she's being treated really, really badly? Which was the interesting thing, and which was sort of the brave thing to do, because he, was, he did leave us very ambiguous towards her. And it wasn't one of those, oh, they're just torturing her and torturing her you were sort of wondering once in a while what could just okay just go down and have that dinner now yeah, <laughs> you yeah. just do it and then go back to your boys and and leave it be and then leave, you know <laughs> yeah, for anything for a quiet life yes. sort of don't need to be always defying them although mm-hmm. the compulsion to be late and the compulsion not to seem to be a compulsion rather than a voluntary mm-hmm. act i mean again there was this uh ambivalence but ambiguity between whether she was doing this on purpose or, or whether she was just unable to control herself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, I, and, and you could easily watch this film and come away thinking Prince Charles isn't that bad. You know, mm-hmm. I, don't th- I don't think the royal family, I think with the crown, you, you definitely become Team Diana. Oh yeah, they're just all They're, 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 they're horrible <laughs> yeah. and um, she's a relative, she's an innocent, outsider who gets caught up in mm. in the teeth of the machine uh, I think here it's mu- it's actually much more ambivalent I thought it was good but they had slightly cliche ghost appearances and things like that brought it down for me a bit that um, yeah mm. yeah no I, I I think it all it, it really falls you know stands or falls by by that central performance I mean mm. she's in almost every scene mm-hmm. uh, she dominates the movie uh, and and it's a really difficult task because she is she, she is right from the very beginning in a mess in in a crisis. So there is a danger that it can be a one note character that she's teary eyed for a good fifty percent of the movie, mm-hmm. um, and that can be grating. But I think she gives enough well, she, she did that color well. mm-hmm. and difference for it to for it to go through and and you know and feel quite a lot of sympathy for the character as well. Yeah. So moving along to a movie that I know that we both really like was Maggie Gyllenhaal's really stunning directorial feature debut, The Lost Daughters, which is based on a Ferrante novel and starring Olivia Colman, who's just amazing in it. And you really liked it as well. It's one of my favorites that I've yeah, seen. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, have you read the Ferrante novel? I have novel? not. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Neither have I, so, so we're right. <laughs> I just thought... But I do feel, because I've read the, uh, you know, the, my brilliant friend did that, I do sure. really hear Ferrante's voice in it, um, in terms of you know the motherhood and guilt and women and and, and yeah. so and now I really want to read it because yeah. I'm really curious of what how she did this so phenomenally well. Yeah, Maggie I, Gyllenhaal, who I, wrote it also. Right, the right. Screenplay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I I was just so impressed by this film because as a debut, it's utterly confident, sure-footed, tonally perfect. The performances are amazing. I think when you cast Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley in a movie, you're, you're pretty... Jesse Buckley is the younger version of, of the Olivia. woman that Olivia Colman plays, yeah. Exactly, mm. yes, because it, it, it takes place on two different time frames, essentially as, a, as an older woman played by 
Olivia Coleman, who's on a sort of working holiday older on a woman, Greece she's island. Older woman, she's Older relationship to Jesse Buckley. Yeah, no, you're, you're. Well, actually, that's that does become a point in it the does. movie. Yeah. That's a, a real. When is old, old, and yeah. when is uh, when is, you know, um, yeah, she's in her forties. She's forty-eight. I mean. I was thinking there was a film by Joanna Hogg, which was about a woman going on holiday with a bunch of friends, and she's on her own. But it's about her. It's about how difficult a, a single, mature woman it, it doesn't kind kind of fit in. We still don't. It's like, what are mm-hmm. you doing on your own? Yeah, Where's your, your husband? Yeah. Where's your partner? Where's your you know? There's, and, and it sort of has that aspect that everybody is like, kind of, what are you doing here? That's not in a way that they wouldn't be with a man. Um, and on the beach, she uh, comes into contact with this sort of American Greek family who have a young child and who she seems to be triggered by uh, when she first sees. And it, it triggers her into remembering her own experience as a young mother, played by Jessica Buckley. And, um, and looking back on the relationship she had with her two young children, uh, which is just revealed very slowly and piece by piece. and. Uh, so elegantly and themes that you don't see so much about how tiring it can be to have small children and how how a woman is not supposed to feel that and 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 just so slowly all you know reveals how her then if it's her husband or her boyfriend or whatever is and how that relationship is and then it's the young greek american mother and the now who is played by really well by dakota johnson who also has a very difficult relationship that she's sort of observing from the beach and there's all these women in the different stages of motherhood that just got me thinking of so many of my own stages of motherhood and just so elegantly directed for a first timer that that it just swept me away. Absolutely. I mean, she knows, she absolutely knows what. There was almost something a little bit like Cassavetes in where she was putting the camera. She was right up in, in yes, people's faces. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, uh, there is an element in, of her being in Greece as well, where she's sort of the fish out of water. She's this, the, the, the one person who doesn't really fit in. But it almost felt like a horror movie as well, because this family seemed to have a bad reputation and, the, and there are some teenage boys who are very sort of bullying and, and nasty but Olivia Coleman just pre- presents this portrait of this woman who is no pushover at all you know she's a professor she's achieved stuff professionally she is um, very forthright she's she can be quite stubborn at times and yet she seems to be accessing a, a, a kind of traumatic period in her life mm-hmm. as well and sort of trying not to fall apart under the pressure of it it's it's such a beautiful performance the things that she can do with her face yeah is i don't think there's any other actor that can do that she does the little thing she does with her mouth she shows a little bit of disgust you yeah. can see she, when she starts tearing up how she's holding it back and goes for it, it just she really does amazing things just with looks because the long portion of the film in the beginning is her just observing it's very quiet she's observing that family she's observing the apartment she's looking at all kinds of things when she arrives to this apartment she's going to be alone at for a while working and and, and but just because it's her and what she does with her face, you understand what she's thinking and how she's thinking and yeah. No, I, he she has such talent. I think she's technically such a superb actress. And if you ever listen to her in an interview, she's also incredibly humble and should be almost dismissive of her own talent. Mm-hmm. Says, oh, I don't really understand that. And yet she is the master of like 
she can evoke anything mm-hmm. you know she's in this film there's she's a master of this sort of um embarrassed smile mm-hmm. and trying to and then you think oh she's a nice per and then there's the steel in her soul that yeah. will suddenly suddenly shine through in her eyes as um and she's someone who can who is brave enough to show the uglier side of uh I, no i don't mean physically mm-hmm. at all uglier side of her life in terms of the uglier side of a character really expose herself and yeah and show herself in a way that is is not particularly attractive and then another instant she can you know there's a scene uh, with the Irish actor from Normal People Mm -hmm, I've forgotten mm -hmm. the name of the guy um where he said they're getting drunk together and he says oh you're really beautiful and she is Mm -hmm. she is really beautiful so it's it's she can really do that ah there you go yeah but i mean um look we were talking in part one of the of the of the podcast about how um how there are fewer women in the in the competition and how we were were looking at jane campion as like she could be a winner in this in this thing i think maggie gyllenhaal has to be uh, has to be a contender oh absolutely because i think she's turned up and it's just so great to have another female director who who is really you know you i hope that she she this is the beginning of a long fruitful career because it she's definitely got the chops oh absolutely you know? i think so too well let's get into power of the dog if you were mentioning jane campion also absolutely blew me away i know it's more of a divisive film that people either loved or didn't it seemed like it absolutely worked on me I saw the character played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who was a very evil, almost cliche rancher cowboy um, who basically destroys the Kirsten Dunst character, who is his brother's wife, who comes in to live with them, as more of a fable, as a creation of, of male patriarchy and toxic masculinity and repression and... and for me, it just got me thinking of all these themes. I also thought it was just gorgeous. It was in a Western milieu. She's really taken all the tropes, all the spurs that are too loud when the cowboys are walking and the horses mm. and this. So I, it blew me away. I thought it was a female perspective on genres that most, not many females have touched. It's almost always had women at the center, and I thought she really took an interesting perspective looking at this male character. What about you? I, yeah, I think in terms of she, she's always been open to generic experiment. I mean, when she did in the cut, she was very much doing a feminist version of those erotic thrillers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was so popular with Basic Instinct and uh, Fatal Attraction in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, so, and I think she does the western really well. I mean, the western is a, is a genre. The west is all all about ending. You're always having the end of the west. In the western you know the railroad road arrives in once right, upon a time right. in the west or um john wayne has to walk into the sunset at the end of the searches um here the west has sort of has ended for a good 10 15 20 years it's 1925 everyone uh, there's this ranch where phil uh, the benedict cumberbatch character is living as if it's the early 19th century. You, you mentioned his spurs earlier on. Mm. You know, he walks around the house in his spurs. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, he, he, he luxuriates in the sort of the filth of what he's doing. He castrates bulls without wearing gloves for no reason. You know, so there's just this sense that he's fetishizing the West. Yeah. And it's so interesting having a Western 
which has as its main character somebody who's fetishizing the very thing that makes it a western. Exactly, and there's all the, the whistle, the morricone type of thing. I mean, there's all these things. He plays that she's the banjo. Using. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's a you know there's a real sense that that the 20th century arrived 25 years ago, and it still hasn't arrived in this this ranch. And even when you meet his parents at one point, you realize, oh, well, wait a second, they're, they're, they're living in the 20th century. And, and you find out as well later on that he has actually been in civilization. He's a university graduate. And so, in a sense, he's kind of cosplaying the cowboy bit a little. Now, my problem or resistance to the film was that I felt Benedict Cumberbatch didn't quite embody that evil character. I'm, he's not the for, he's not a Daniel Day Lewis in mm -hmm. There Will Be Blood, which I think is a film which is is very much oh, in conversation Fair. with this film. Um, having said that, it might be the case that he's playing someone playing a cowboy, and therefore, if there is a gap in credibility, it might as well it might as much be the characters fault as it is the actors mm -hmm. but I did think it was really handsome mm -hmm. I did think it was the landscape with the changing colors and the clouds drifting oh. over were just superb another female DP right well you know no it worked good. for me and he, yeah, <laughs> and he worked for me and Kirsten we were talking about brave female roles this is not just someone who Kirsten Dunst isn't playing a woman who's just is a little upset. She's basically become, you know, annihilated by the end of this and the alcohol and all this. And I thought that was a powerful performance that they took all the way. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't have any. It's it's in in a way very degrading and humiliating for the character, and and it's it, it's tough. I mean, I wondered if if there was an element of her character that was was almost a little bit too much, like the victim or the or the um not not that there's anything wrong with that but but it, if it hadn't been an actress as good as Kristen Dunst I think there was a danger of of sort of losing sympathy with her because she's she's so she she's having such a hard time of it and and it's it's and there's there's, there's almost no fight back but I think she does she she is really really good and really really sympathetic it is kind of a, a a world without women and she is the one woman mm -hmm. in the in this whole thing and and i do think that she introduces things in her background there she actually has she's you know she had a garden she could play the piano she, i mean she in the world without women she was actually trying she's a single mother who's really sure. protective of her son so i didn't feel that she was a a victim other than you know comparing our time to her time sure. there was this so much that she could do but then sure then then you know you could see her being crushed in a way that I thought was quite interesting and she her husband is played by Jesse Plemons her real-life husband they make a great they have great chemistry of course but. one thing I wondered about that is what would the film have been like if Jesse Plemons and Benedict Cumberbatch had swapped roles because Jesse Plemons is a wonderful actor, but he's, he's, he's in danger of being sort of given these sort of, uh, you know, good-hearted doofus roles. Yeah, yeah. Here he's very the repressed brother. I mean, he's also mm. crushed by his own brother. I think, yeah. well, I think it would have been a more interesting film. film. Could be, yeah. Because I think Plemons would have been... Uh, mm. I, I think if, if he... I mean, I know Benedict Cumberbatch is to a degree playing against type, 
because he usually plays heroic figures. Mm -hmm. But he also usually plays heroic figures who are kind of, well, to use an Italian phrase, antipathical. Mm -hmm. You know, they're mm -hmm. quite Sherlock or, or, or Doctor Strange are, are kind of nasty, arrogant people who turn into heroes. You know, but not to, to say too much about this character. I mean, he's not, I mean, he has one more level to him that yeah. you understand towards the middle of what sure, is it that... Sure, absolutely. That, um, yeah, yeah, I, I, that is true. There is, it is a more complex yeah. character. And, and, and I think that's what the whole film does, actually. It introduces you to people who you think are types, yeah, and, and then it, it humanizes yeah, them, yeah. and, and humanizes them for sort of better or worse. You and surprise, you, you have this one picture of who the Benedict Cumberbatch character is, and you're sort of, you know, and all of a sudden something new is introduced about yep. his background where you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Why did you see that come? I mean, it's in, and she just brings that in. I, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting point. Mm. She is extremely good, I think, at, at getting a the period right and, and, and not just in terms of the, the production design and the furniture and that sort of stuff but also in terms of, of having characters behave the way they would behave in that period um, I think she did that wonderfully with the piano for instance and I think she does it here as well there's a real sense that the people exist within their times even as they're sort of struggling in some ways to hold those times back mm -hmm. in the terms of Benedict Cumberbatch or in the terms of his brother to actually bring them forward. But don't you think she actually wanted an actor who we didn't know how he would surprise us? I mean Daniel Day-Lewis we would have known what he was bringing into this somehow and then and, and it'd be interesting to ask her why you know point like why she chose him because she apparently she really went yeah, after and him. And they worked yeah. and they yeah. worked together and and you know, I mean, I think he, you know, he physically doesn't look like, like a cowboy. No. he's not. He's not thick set. He's skinny. He's a. He's a beanpole. He. Um, he I, and and I think that maybe maybe also draws a comparison with Pete, uh, Rose and George's son, mm -hmm. uh, Kristen Dunst and Jesse Plemons' son, who is played by. Well, he's not Jesse Plemons' son. No, sorry, sorry. Uh, he's the stepson. Exactly, you're he's right. The, yeah. yeah. What is his name? Kit. Kids, something, yeah. something. Very good, yeah. though. The, <laughs> Sorry, we don't remember the name. The edit, you'll yeah, just drop yeah, the name yeah. in. And do a different <laughs> I'll voice. go next to a fountain and drop the name. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, he's very good, but he's he's also very very thin, and so there's a sort of a, a pairing, mm -hmm. a sort of. Um, and they're more alike reflection. than we And they're very, yeah, they're very alike. <laughs> but I think we can say it. I mean, I don't think is it a twist? Is it a spoiler? Um, because that's the interesting part mm -hmm. of the film. That's mm -hmm. the most interesting aspect of the film, yeah. is that okay? If you don't want to hear, you spoiler know, coming. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a, a queering of, of the West mm -hmm. as well. In that Benedict Cumberbatch's character is definitely a, re, a, a repressed, repressed yeah. homosexual. So, um, I think that that that's and you mentioned toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. which I think is a word which. Has, is beginning to wear wear out a little bit, but going back to the original idea of toxic masculinity was was the fact that tos toxic masculinity originally was formulated as the idea of mansplaining toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Can you believe that? <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I've, I'm not not only telling you, I'm giving you me, myself as an yeah. example. Um, but it was actually about uh, masculine behaviours, which 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 damage the, the man, which mm -hmm. damage, uh, you know, an inability to show affection right, and right. empathize all the rest of it. Uh, not so much how, how we think of it nowadays, which is just being a shitty person mm -hmm. or being a shitty man. 
and it, and this film it, it has that toxic masculinity in that the character literally rolls around in mud yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to avoid contact with other people. Uh, I mean, he says at one point, "I like my own stink." And that's, Don't get close to me. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it is almost like a literal demonstration of that. See, so you like it more now, right? Now I, <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. But there's it, so, it, it, it is a film I would definitely revisit. Do you want to round up? Uh, there, are, there are a couple of films I would like to mention. Yeah. That, uh, so Official Competition, which is a comedy from an Argentinian pair of directors. And uh, it stars Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas and an Argentinian actor, whose name I can't remember, but we'll drop all of these in the fountain. Um, <laughs> and it's a hilarious comedy about the making of a film uh, with two actors who have very different philosophies and Antonio Banderas is a Hollywood star actor and the Argentinian guy is the more of the theatrical teaches acting and is very intellectual about it and it's just brilliant it's Ooh, just I so funny it's yeah. so funny and it's very very uh, brilliantly constructed little little farce essentially but with very witty and it's, it's great to see Banderas really having fun with his own sort of public persona <laughs> And then the other film that I'd like to uh, finally sort of uh, end up with is uh, Il Buco, which is an Italian film by the same director who did Quattro Volte. Again, I'm sorry, I don't have the name at my fingertips. And uh, he, the Quattro Volte was a sort of documentary uh, in, set in Calabria. It's kind of a drama documentary. It's, kind of, it lo- it's very much filming stuff happening, but it tells a narrative story. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a documentary at all. It's just a different way of filming, filming a fiction, I guess. Um, long shots, both in terms of duration, but also in terms of distance, often a landscape, and then mm-hmm. it will pick out a detail of the landscape and we'll go in and see. This film is about a bunch of uh, cave explorers who came down from the north of Italy into Calabria to explore a, the, one of the deepest caves in the world. They didn't know it was the deepest at, at the time. They were exploring it, so they found that out. Uh, this story is... So that's a period thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this story is uh, linked to uh, the story of a herdsman, another cowboy, if you like, a very old man up in the hills who falls ill. And these two stories d- uh, take place in the same location during the same time, but are completely sort of separate. They're mm-hmm. just, And there's no dialogue in the film at all. Um, or at least you can hear people speaking and everything, but it, it's no Nothing subtitles in the mm-hmm. in the the version that, that I saw, and it's and it's entirely visual and sound and and it's fantastic. It's beautiful. It has poetry. You know the word poetic cinema is sometimes used, and I tend to cringe when it is. But this is genuine. But you're going to use it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's genuine. Oh, that's poetry. nice. I want to see that. I missed that one too. Oh, it'll, this will make a circuit of yeah. the festival and the and the art cinemas. This will this will get shown outside of Italy definitely. Well, John, you have days left. Um, yes. This was the for me the end yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, it was so interesting to get to talk to you both in part one and part two about this will there be a part three when it's all uh, over that would be fun yeah. if you have time I'm always there for it well they'll be back on zoom though so I won't get the yeah. full experience <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much excellent thank you thank Christina you.
Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.